you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Joshua. Uh, in the Pew Bibles in front of you, it starts on page 178. 178. Uh, today we're going to be in Joshua chapter 3, verse 1, through uh, chapter 5, verse 12. Large section of text. Joshua, starting in verse 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. So, uh, as I'm going to read a, a movie plot line for you guys to start out. Uh, as the Third Reich continues its reign of terror, Adolf Hitler is on a quest for the legendary Ark of the Covenant, resting place of the Ten Commandments, whose supernatural powers, legend says, can wipe out entire armies. The U.S. government turns to Dr. Indiana Jones for the mission. Relentlessly pursued by Hitler's henchmen, Indy infiltrates their massive digging operation in a race against time to discover the Well of Souls where the ark has lain undisturbed for centuries. If you're unfamiliar, uh, this is the plot line for the 1981 hit, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. While this movie is fictional, the ark at the center of the plot line isn't. And in today's passage, we're going to see that ark, and more importantly, the God behind the ark, on display. Uh, to quickly kind of catch us up in the book of Joshua, uh, I want to remember what's happened so far in the book. Uh, in chapter 1, we saw Moses die, and leadership pass from Moses to Joshua, and the promise of God to be with his people. He promised him that he would be with them. Uh, we saw the vital importance of the unity of God's people and the importance of their obedience to his word. We've also learned the importance of God's people in God's place under God's rule. Uh, God's people in God's place under God's rule. Uh, that's a, a biblical definition of the kingdom of God. In, in chapter 2, we saw spies sent into the promised land. Uh, they met a prostitute named Rahab who covenanted with Yahweh, the God of Israel, and, and was shown compassion and, and mercy. We learned uh, that God had gone before Israel and made his works known to the people in Canaan. And that the people in Canaan were terrified of the coming judgment. Today, we're going to pick back up in chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to go through chapter 5, verse 12. While uh, we normally read through the entire text to start off our sermon... Uh, this is a massive section of text, three chapters, and so I'm just going to simply give us a paraphrase. But uh, if you haven't already, uh, I encourage you this afternoon to go read uh, the entire text, if you have time this afternoon or evening. So uh, you'll recall that at the end of chapter one, we watched God call Joshua, and then Joshua called the people to cross over the Jordan River and to enter the land that God had promised them. And that's right where we find them at the beginning of chapter 3. Uh, God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea miraculously because God parted it for them. They went into the desert where God provided for them with food and water and direction. And they still didn't trust him. They disobeyed. So 
God kept them out of the promised land for 40 years. Now, at the beginning of chapter 3, they're on the edge of the land, sitting just to the east. But there's a problem. In between them and the land is a river, the Jordan River to be exact. While it may look like a little trickle on the map here, so this is the Jordan River, you got the Salt Sea and then the Jordan River. So, so they're over here and they're trying to get over to here. It looks like a little trickle on the map, uh, but it, it isn't. We're going to learn uh, more about that later. So uh, crossing this raging river with 40,000 men was not going to be easy. But again, remember from chapter 1, God was with them. So in our text today, God tells them, it's time, get ready. It's time for you guys to actually cross the river and go into the land. Get the priests, get the Ark of the Covenant, tell the priests to walk up to the raging river and tell them to actually step into it. When they do, I'm going to stop the water from flowing. I'm going to heap the water up on both sides so that all of you can cross over on dry land. Then he tells them, I want you to pick, up, pick, pick 12 men from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And while they're in the riverbed, I want each of them to pick up one of the large stones, throw it on their shoulder, and then set it on the other side as a memorial of what I just did. So they grab the stones, they cross on dry ground, the priests with the Ark of the Covenant move across on dry, dry riverbed, and then immediately the water closes back up, it goes back to normal, raging and running. Miraculous. So the people of God are now in the promised land, in enemy territory. And in chapter 5, God commands all of the males to be circumcised. They celebrate Passover, and for the first time in 40 years, the miraculous bread from heaven stops. Instead, they eat of the fruit of Canaan. All right, so that's what happens in our three chapters today in paraphrase. But what, what's God teaching us in that? Our four points for today are as follows. Number one, following God. In, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, following God. Point 2, the miraculous crossing in verses 7 through 17. And then 3, remembering God's works in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 and verses 19 and 24. And then point 4, in enemy territory, 5, verse 1 through 12. So point 1, following God. Uh, I want us to see from the very beginning of this text that there's a precedent that's being set here, uh, a precedent that carries not only through all of the book of Joshua, but through the entire Bible. Uh, look with me at verse 3. It says, and, com uh, and he commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Now, we already know that the Ark of the Covenant is pretty important, but why? What, what is the Ark even? If you're new to the Bible and all that you know of the Ark is from Indiana Jones, that's okay. Um, here's what we're talking about. In the Bible, in the book of Exodus, 
Um, God calls Moses, one of, of God's key leaders, to go up a mountain to talk to him. So Moses goes up the mountain and God gives him the law or how he desires his, his people to live for their own good. So God gives him the law. Well, in Exodus chapter 25, God then commands his people to build this box or this ark of wood. And he tells them to overlay it with gold and to put the stone tablets with the law in them uh, into the ark. So uh, they they put that in there. They also put in some of the manna or or the bread from heaven that God's been giving them, along with Aaron, Moses' brother's staff. This is pretty cool. But it's way more than just a a biblical memorabilia chest. I, I want us to see that that it symbolized God's presence with his people. Think about this. God brought them right up to this raging river, and then he tells them to wait three days. I want you to imagine that. Can you imagine waiting next to this seemingly uncrossable river and just looking at it for three whole days? What would you be thinking? It doesn't matter if you're a river half full or a river half empty kind of person. You'd likely be thinking, there's no way we're going to make it across that thing. So understand this. God often uses delays like this to deepen faith and trust in him. They they don't have the whole battle plan at this point. They only know the first step that they're being called to. But they do know this. They know that the ark is going before them. They know that God's presence is blazing the trail. He's with them. And here they're being called to follow him. Remember, the ark symbolizes God's presence with his people. They had to follow God to obtain their inheritance. They wouldn't and they couldn't enter the land any other way. Then look at verse 4. It says, Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, speaking of the ark, a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Kind of strange, right? 2,000 cubits uh, is a little bit more than a half a mile. So it's kind of like the distance from right here at this church building all the way down to the fire station, if you guys know where that is. So God calls them to follow his presence, but then he tells them to sit back a little bit, about a half a mile. Why does he do that? Well, for one reason, uh, this represents God's holiness. While he is, for lack of a better term, on their team, he's also separate from them. He's wholly other and set apart from them. And he wants them to know this. But on a more practical level, it seems as if he wants them to kind of stand back and watch. If if 40,000 men are bunched up right on the heels of the ark, they may not see or be able to comprehend what what exactly is taking place here. It, It would most likely be utter chaos. Also, God doesn't want there to be any confusion about who's the one doing the work here. He's the one who's about to stop the water. None of the 40,000 Israelite soldiers is going to be able to take the credit here if they're a half mile back. 
No one saying, did you see that? When my feet hit the water, it stopped. Do you see what I did there? No, no one's going to be able to do that. God wants this to be clear. He's the one who's about to do this. They need to see this before they enter the land because they're going to need to trust God every step of the way. How about you? Do you ever take time to sit back and to look at the works of God? Or are we always just so busy that we miss what God just did right in front of us? When we get so busy with life and work and social media and this and that and the other, it's so easy to miss what God is doing. I want to encourage us this morning. Step back. Open the word of God and marvel at what he's done in redemption history. Step back and marvel at what he's done in your life. You can trust him with your future. That's what he wants the Israelites to see. But in order for this to happen, there's one more command here. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So before they can see and comprehend God's works, they're told to consecrate themselves. Throughout the Bible, this means intentional and special preparation. They would wash their clothes. They would confess sin. They would prepare their hearts and much more. It was a time of sanctification and a time of purity. The Israelites here are being called to prepare themselves for the Lord to show up. If they wouldn't have prepared, they might have misunderstood or underappreciated what it was that God was doing. Now, it's not every day that God stops a river from flowing. Other than in the Exodus, this was a unique experience. But I want to kind of press us with the principle that's being, being given here. Do you prepare yourself to see and meet God each time we gather for public worship? Do you take time to consecrate yourself, confess sin, prepare your heart? Do we, do we give any thought to it at all? And do we come expecting God to do something? If we're not impressed with God's glory when we gather for public worship, might it be that we haven't prepared our hearts to see him as such? What about in just the everyday stuff of life? Might we be missing God because instead of preparing our hearts each morning in his word, we're caught up in social media? God is all around us. He's in the everyday stuff of life, and most significantly in his word. Consecrate yourself. Prepare your heart. Watch what God's doing and follow him. God's presence is with his people. Prepare, watch, trust, worship. Point two, the miraculous crossing. Verses 7 through 17. So, the... the, the, The ark goes before them. 
they, they kind of sit back and they let the priest in the ark get about a half a mile in front of them. They watch and the moment comes. The suspense is so thick that you could cut it with a knife. Then look at verses 9 through 10. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he uh, will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Can you imagine this scene? What's going to happen? Is God going to come through here? So, so, so Joshua emboldens them with the words of the Lord, your God, the living God, he says. Isn't that astounding? He's saying, don't be afraid. You serve a living God. He's not dead, as we learned last week from Luke 24. He's a living God. And he's about to show you just how alive he is. Then we have verse 11. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, is passing over before you into the Jordan. So not only is he not dead, he's not just a local deity. He's not a small town God. He's the Lord of all the earth. And he's about to put that truth on display right in front of him. So you can feel that the suspense kind of building in the text. And I love this. You're you're reading along and you're thinking, come on, let's go. Let's do this. You've told us what you're going to do. Do it already. And then the author adds one more important detail in verse 15. And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Suspense, 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 right? And then there's this parenthesis. Now, the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. In other words, but before you consider what I'm about to describe to you as the suspense is building, remember, the Jordan River was at flood stage here. What this means is this. The Jordan at this time was probably over a mile wide and 10 to 12 feet deep. Are you kidding me? Understand this. God never does anything by mistake, ever. His timing is always perfect. He could have brought his people into the land at any point of the year, but he intentionally brought them to this river when it seemed impossible. Why? Well, to show his power amidst his people's utter helplessness. To show his power amidst his people's utter helplessness. This is God's MO throughout the entire Bible. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Paul is praying to God and asking him to take away this thorn in the flesh. And look at what Paul says. It says, but he, speaking of God, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, 
insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what God's doing here in the book of Joshua. He's about to display his power in the face of their weakness and in the face of what they see as impossible. This is at the heart of the good news of Jesus. Because every single one of us has sinned and cut ourselves off from a holy God, because that's true of every single one of us, we're helpless. There's absolutely nothing we can do to get across that river. We're dead in our sins. A lot of us, if we're honest, come up to that river. We, we know that we're dead in our sins, but we spend a lot of time trying to, to build a boat or a bridge to cross the water, thinking that we can get across on our own. But we can't. God wanted the people in, in Joshua and us this morning to know that the only way into the promised land is to fully rely on him. Jesus came to this earth. He died on the cross. He absorbed the full amount of God's just wrath for his people. He was buried and three days later rose from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, and death. He defeated all of those with one fell swoop. He parted the water and he made a way for us to go through into God's promised land on dry ground, not in a boat or on a bridge that we've built, but through repentance and faith in Christ. When we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus and his work for us on the cross, we will be saved. God's people had to know that they couldn't do it themselves. They had to have faith in their God. Look with me at verse 16. As soon as the feet of the priests were in the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. At Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Wow. Don't we serve a powerful God? <laughs> If God can tame a raging river, he can beat Canaanite kings. If, if he can stop the overflowing banks of the Jordan, he can deal with whatever's going on in your life at this very moment. That's the truth. Do you believe that this morning? Paul uses this same logic in Romans 8, 31 through 32, when he says this. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see that? If God didn't spare his own son, but gave Jesus up to die for us, if that's true, and it is, he deeply cares about you. He cared enough, if he cared enough to do that for us, our everyday worries are not a problem for him. Our stresses, our anxieties, our problems, 
Nothing's too big. He's already stopped the Jordan River from flowing. Nothing's too big for him. That's the God we follow. That's the God we trust. Point three, remembering God's works. Remembering God's works. What what God just did for his people is incredible. So much so that he wants them to remember it. So in chapter four, God tells his people, take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan that I just parted. So he parts the water, it's dry ground. There's some stones in there and he tells them, I want you to pick up these stones and bring them out on the other bank to set up a memorial. But why? Well, because as humans, we're a forgetful people. (laughs) There are three things I can't remember, the old professor once said. I can't remember names, I can't remember faces, and hmm, well, I guess I can't remember the other thing I can't remember. Our tendency as human beings is to forget. There's so much that's thrown at us, especially in a technological age, right? It's easy to forget people's birthdays, anniversaries, phone numbers, whatever. We are a forgetful people, and most of that can be pretty benign. But when it comes to the things that matter most, like who God is and what he's done, It's vitally important that we remember. God knew this to be true, and so he tells them to set up stones. And he did this for three purposes. Number one, the Israelites themselves needed to be encouraged. The road ahead was not going to be an easy one for them. There would be times of discouragement, maybe even times of doubt for many of them. They needed to walk by those stones day in and day out and remember God's power and his faithfulness to them. They needed to be encouraged through remembrance. Second, they would need to relay these truths to their children. Look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. It says, That this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Again, look down at verses 21 and 22. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan and on dry ground. These stones had an educational purpose for their children. The people of God, as we know from Deuteronomy chapter 6, they had a responsibility to teach the things of the Lord to their children. These stones were to serve as a constant reminder of what God did there and his goodness to his people that gets relayed to their children. Third, The the people of the earth, it says, needed a testimony to the existence and nature of the one true God. Look at verses 23 and 24. It says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, 
which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that, so here's the reasoning, here's one of the reasons for the stone, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Francis Schaeffer, he says that the stones were to tell the other nations roundabout that this God is different. He really exists. He is a living God, a God of real power who is imminent in the world. This 12-stone memorial told a story. Just like other memorials, maybe the 9-11 memorial or the USS Arizona memorial in Hawaii, You come up to them and you realize very quickly, something happened here. And if you don't know the story, you ask, what happened here? God wanted his people to be encouraged. He wanted his people to tell the story to their kids. And he wanted the nations to know that he was alive and well. Now, today... We don't have 12 massive stones from the Jordan River kind of out in our parking lot. So, what does this look like? Well, first, I believe just like the Israelites, we too need regular encouragement. It's easy for us to live in the world Monday through Saturday and to get discouraged. It's easy for us to even entertain doubts. This is why it's so, so, so important for us to gather each week around God's word together. We need a constant reminder of God's gracious acts toward us. We're a forgetful people and we need to be reminded of these truths frequently. Second, like the Israelites, we need to tell our kids about God. As parents, we have the amazing responsibility and joy to teach our kids who God is and what he's done. Uh, Honestly, this text this week has has me thinking and considering what it might look like, even for us periodically, to have the kids in here during the Lord's Supper. Uh, Not not that, that I'm saying that they take the Lord's Supper, but it'd be a fantastic opportunity for parents to explain the elements and the gospel to their kids and to remind them of who God is and what he's done. Aside from this, parents have opportunities to do this kind of thing every single night at the dinner table or in the living room. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to open up the word of God, read a passage, and answer some questions for your kids and pray together. In fact, uh, there's a book that I highly recommend. It's really small. It's called Family Worship by Donald Whitney. Uh, This has been like one of the most burden-lifting books ever for me as a parent. Uh, Sometimes I hear other pastors talk about what it looks like to lead family worship. And it can sound really complicated and hard to do. Uh, But as I read this book, it's really simple. Open up the Bible, read a passage, let your kids ask some questions, pray together. Every single one of us can do that. Uh, So I highly recommend uh, this little book. It kind of walks through what that might look like uh, on a a day-in, day-out basis. So these stones existed to encourage the people. They existed uh, to to tell their kids about who God is and what he had done. 
Third, uh, I want to suggest that we as a local church function a little bit like these stones. We exist as a monument of God to the nations. We represent the truth that God is alive and well. We must remember God's works. So they set up these 12 stones, but there was more. Point four, in enemy territory, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Uh, I'm going to read verses 2 through 7. Chapter 5, verses 2 through 7. At that time, so they've, they've crossed, crossed on dry ground. They're in enemy territory. And here we go. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Harharah. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. This is crazy. Understand this. So they've crossed the river at this point. And they're not safe. They're not in the neutral zone, so to speak. They're in enemy territory in chapter 5. Most athletes or soldiers know that before you take the field, you better be fully prepared. You eat well. You sleep well. You make sure that your body is finely tuned. In battle, your life is literally on the line. This is insane what God's commanding them to do right here. If, if most of us are leading an attack, we're going to cross the Jordan and attack before anyone even knows we're there. We don't give them time to get ready. We go now. We go quick. But God tells them to wait. And he tells them to get circumcised. Circumcision is not a good war strategy. To make this point, I want to point you to Genesis chapter 34. In Genesis 34, there's this girl named Dinah. She's the daughter of Jacob. And the text tells us that there's this man named Shechem who rapes Dinah and humiliates her. Well, to, to try to kind of smooth things over with Jacob and the rest of his family, this guy named Shechem, he, he decides he wants Dinah as his wife. So what does he do? They, they go to Jacob, whose family is actually gone at this point. Jacob's alone. And they ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. I'm not making this up. Go read Genesis 34. So what does Jacob do? Well, his sons return. And this is what they say to Shechem. They say this. Genesis 34, 14 through 17. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a disgrace to us. 
Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So Shechem and his entire family and his entire city decide to go through with this. Then verses 25 through 29. So they all, all the men get circumcised. And on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. Two of them took an entire city out. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. The point of this text, what I want you guys to see there, you're basically defenseless for a while after circumcision. That's what God told his people to do as soon as they crossed into enemy territory here in Joshua. Take the sign of the covenant on themselves and thus render themselves defenseless. Do you understand how much they had to trust God to actually go through with this? Turns out that God cared more about their hearts than their swords. And what did they do? They trusted God. See this. They obeyed God immediately and radically, even when it was dangerous. Why? Because they feared God more than they feared the Canaanites. At the end of the day, God knew that they had to trust him if they were going to take the land. Self-reliance simply wouldn't do. And this is true for us today, too. The path to heaven isn't paved with self-reliance. We don't get the land by doing it ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. Our good works cannot earn or merit our salvation. We're only saved by putting all our trust in God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Yes, let's just admit, that seems so backwards to us. Just like going into enemy territory and being circumcised. We think that we can get to heaven by working hard or being good. But God says we get to heaven through unmerited grace. God has done all the work we need. And so we trust him. We rely on him. We rest in him. If you're not a Christian, we want you to know that this is at the heart of Christianity. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your sins can be forgiven this very moment, once and for all. Not through you being a better person or doing better, but through turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. When you do that, you can rest knowing that you're made right with God. When you, you can rest knowing that God is the one who wins the battle for you. You can rest in God's never failing promises. And we invite you to make that decision even today. 
And look at look at what God's people do next. They, they obey immediately, even when it's dangerous. But look what they do next. Verses 10 and 11. It says, While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And, and the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. So after obeying God's command, they celebrate the Passover. This meal that they took was a reminder to them of how God had saved them in the past. It was a memorial meal that reminded them of how God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt and rescued them from their enemies. While circumcision was a one-time thing, displaying the sign of the covenant, this meal that they're taking was an ongoing reminder of God's faithfulness to them. No one took this meal and then looked back at Egypt and said, man, we did such a great job there. Do you remember that? No. Each time they celebrated the Passover, they looked back at Egypt and they said, God did a great job there. Thank you, God. Thank you for the blood of the lamb that literally saved our lives in Egypt. Thank you for delivering us when we were helpless. Thank you for redeeming us. This is the meal that they took here in the land. This is the meal that Jesus took in Luke chapter 22, where he instituted the Lord's Supper. I I want us to grasp this. Each time we take the Lord's Supper, we're doing this. We're proclaiming our weakness and God's strength. We're confessing that we were dead in our sin, but that Christ's body and blood rescued us. Each time we take the Lord's Supper, it's our declaration of dependence upon Christ. We're remembering our redemption, and we're doing it together. And it's to that meal that we turn now.